Welcome to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Spech. Hello. What's happening, buddy? Not much, man. Nothing at all? Well, I do have a question. So you probably heard about this, like I heard about it a week, about, about a week ago, and, and it's been uh, spread around a lot, so I got, a cur- I got a question. Now, this has nothing to do with Shakespeare. This is, uh, when is a bee not a bee? When is a bee, bee not, not a, a bee? When it's a bumble? When it's a fish. <laughs> so, California has its own Endangered Species Act. Okay. Right? So, there's one. The U.S. has its own, but then California has to do things differently, right? So, you know, the sandwich eating, tree hugging, sandal wearing, you know. So, anyways. Granola munching. I got <laughs> granola munching. <laughs> so, California has its own Endangered Species Act that protects birds, mammals, fish, amphibians, reptiles, and plants. Okay. And sex aren't, in, aren't on that list. Right, so their act is written. It's been it's seventy one or something. So, anyways, uh, they they have been trying to figure out how to protect bumblebees, the uh, honey making crop uh, 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 pollinating bumblebee, uh, honeybee. So, <clears throat> so the they went through the courts and there's there's been a lot of back and forth and trying to determine how the bee can be protected. You have to designate it, but it has to fit inside the existing rules and laws, right, for Endangered Species Act for California. So, what they found is that under the fish designation, it's broken down into various levels. It's wild fish, mollusks, mollusks, crustaceans, invertebrates, amphibians, part spawns, or any sub-designation of the above. So a bee will fit in because they can't just... They're invertebrates. Yes. So they can't make a new designation. The law has to be... You have to fit into the law because they never thought about protecting bugs. Right? Right. Anyway, so what the California courts decided that uh, to add a new or second designation or definition for invertebrates would and could cause confusion for already listed protected species. And so they can't have two listings for invertebrates because it's already covered by fish. So because of precedence, the, they've other species have been slipped in here and there. So they said this is the only way to do it. So it clearly comes down to this then. So when you go fishing in California and you get stung by a bee, you need to ask yourself, what kind of fish was that? <laughs> See, I brought it back to... Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. It was... Uh, that would... Like, there's so many people that could go after that in so many different ways just to, <laughs> just to screw with them. <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was I was assaulted by a flying fish. I've been sitting on this since last Thursday or something, and I'm thinking, really? I, I, I was going to email you that. Now I'm just gonna I'm just gonna spring it on him. <laughs> and after tonight's recording, you would have gone home and gone. Oh, I forgot to tell him about the bees. The bees, and you would have been so angry with yourself. <laughs> so it is. I thought well, that was pretty cool. Eh? Yeah, yeah. So it's a designated as a, a, a sub designation of fish under invertebrates. Hmm. Hmm. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. Apparently somebody's paying attention. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got to make it work, right? So now there's, uh, there's, I think they've are now have now protected as of this 
reading. It's uh, they're protecting four subspecies of uh, honeybee, bumblebee, whatever. So, hmm. so they can just add whatever they want, all willy nilly. Uh, like, well, now. It, they had to go through the courts. It was a long battle. It took uh, a couple of years to get this uh, designation done. So now they can. So if it doesn't have a spine, yeah. So that would be I like- know some people. <laughs> Move to California. I'm going to send you messages. We'll protect you as a species. <laughs> You're going to get protected as a species. You, the lobster, and the bumblebees. <laughs> Actually, lobster is a crustacean. Yeah. That's Not still, get, uh, still get um, protected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool, though, because they, they need the protection. They do, because you know, across across the world, like it, it, bees are very important for the pollination. Like mm-hmm. you want apples, you want any, any, uh, fruit, vegetable, anything that needs pollen, cross pollination. Like, I don't know, unless you want a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people out in the field with Q-tips and playing around with flowers at the, in the spring. Make work project. Yeah, I know. Right. Man. Okay. I'll use school kids. It's, it's a school trip day. School trip <laughs> today, day. Today we're visiting the broccoli farm and. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everybody gets a Q-tip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all you, all, all the tall kids get to go and pollinate the apple fields, wow. <laughs> the, the apple orchards. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so. that's definitely a. a Somebody's looking for all the loopholes. Eh? Yeah. Well, and it's been, there's been a lot of uh, bee die-offs in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Large colonies have been disappearing and, and they're still not sure what it is. They think it has to do with uh, pesticides and so on. And so until they figure that factor out, they need to start, this here law will enable them to start creating rules when it comes to uh, pesticides and, you know, big farm operations, you you need to keep the bad bugs away, but mm-hmm. how do you do that without killing all the good bugs? Right? There's a few species in the world over the last decade or so that have come up with things that are just decimating the populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's that one fungus that there, was it the brown nose bat or something like that? Oh. And then there's the wombats. Mm-hmm. They've got some thing that's killing off yeah. all the wombats down in, down in uh, <laughs> Australia and that. And it's different. The wombats or the Tasmanian devils? Well, I know that the the three toed sloth, they're moldy, but that's just because they move so because slow. Moves that so, yeah. Mold grows Maybe on them. It is a Tasmanian devil. Yeah. They've got the the disease that they can't figure out what exactly it is and what's causing it, but it's decimating the populations. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, but uh, yeah, with with the bees and stuff like that, we need them. Definitely need them. Well, that's a critical species, right? Mm-hmm. Very critical species. Well, it, it you know when it comes to food and food production, it's oh, super important. Yeah. Like I said, it's going to be a a bunch of people who are going to be getting all our kids out into the field pollinating plants, right? So some, somebody's got the do future. It. Yes. Yeah. So uh, what do you do for a career? I'm a apple pollinator. <laughs> I'm an apple pollinator. Yeah. <laughs> My five year old pollinates broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so what else is going on? Uh, not too much. It's uh, you yeah. were you were talking about. You're watching uh, Alone this year, uh, season nine. Is it? So yes, I started it. I've been reading a few articles on it. I, I, I um, K- K- Kaylin, for Lure of the North. Yeah, when she uh, Kaylin, Kaylin. So when, I, I watched a bit when uh, when the Baird brothers were on Alone. Then I, I kind of fell out of favor and I lost interest. And then Kylan was, she was on. And, and so that was interesting to watch it then. And so I'm watching it again. But it was, uh, th- this season is, I don't know. It, it's curious. It's really hard to talk without making fun of people. So I don't, I'm going to try my best not to make fun of people. <laughs> I'll do it. I'm determined not to make fun of people. <laughs> but... But it's uh, 
Okay, you talk. I'm going to leave the room. <laughs> so I will endeavor to let Sean be only the owner who makes fun of people. But yeah, it's uh, so we're what two episodes in, and there's been some some shakeups and some weird stuff happening, and it's it's I, I, for you like if you were gonna oh well let's talk about the basics. So it's uh, obviously it's already set, all said and done because they're not going to put it on until it's uh, everything's happened. So the winner's already decided. We just don't know about it. And it turns out it was done in uh, on the Labrador coast. Mm-hmm. And so it's in a, I can't remember where they, they said where it was, but I forget the actual location, but it's in Labrador. Anyways, uh, very harsh environment. And uh, so if you were going to be trying to live off the land... Where do you think your food's going to come from? The super center. <laughs> Loblaw? <laughs> Honeybees? <Sobeys? laughs> Honeybees. Drone? <laughs> I have a flown in special flown every in day. Drone. Yeah, so anyways, I thought it was interesting. Some of the uh, some of the people that have dropped out, and they mentioned people in the past who have dropped out because of... And so it's... Uh, you're preparing for an alone. You've got picked. You uh, you get dropped off in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and you would think that one of the last. You're not going to drop out because you know, like you know, in the first week because you're lonely. It's like, well, yes, so sure. Like you, people need people contact. So I don't know. But if you're signing up now, in the past, there's been people that last like three days mm-hmm. yep. before they drop out. Mm-hmm. Because they're lonely. Yeah. Because they miss their family. I can get it, but it, you you should have been pre prepared for this. You'd you should think. You, you'd get yourself. You get your game face on. I'm going to be alone for a while. I'm going to leave my family behind. I'm going to get out there, and you know this is the. I, you're thinking ahead. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Oh, I miss my family. Of course, you miss your family. Get to work. Like, things like that. <laughs> now, I'll tell you right now, these kind of shows... I do like Alone more than I like... I, I haven't watched Survivor in the ages. Uh, because I, I, I started the first watching season, that. that was it. <laughs> and I'm just looking at these people going like, do this, do that, do this, do... Come on! Yeah. You idiot. <laughs> How can you not start a fire? <laughs> Day seven, we still have no fire. <laughs> what? <laughs> Day seven! <laughs> You know, I so yeah, I can't watch shows like that. But things like this, it bothers me when people go in. They sign up for these things. This would be awesome because yeah, I love yeah. camping. Mm-hmm. And you're picked because if you have a certain set of skills, so you're you're already an outdoors person. You have outdoor skills. You have. Uh, they're not going to take somebody from the inner city who's never been out in the woods and doesn't know. Uh, you know, d- can tell the trees apart. Mm-hmm. They're going to take somebody who it's it's. But how can you go out there? And like maybe there's just something I'm missing here, but if I'm going to apply for a show like this, mm-hmm. I'm telling my family, "Hey, I'm doing this, and I'm not going to see you for a hundred yep. days, maybe." Yep. Sucks to be you guys if you miss me. It is what it but is. But yep. when I bring home that mm-hmm. big, whatever amount check at the yep. end, exactly. You know. Yeah. Uh, you're you're gonna love me even more <laughs> when I get back. Chances <laughs> <laughs> are it's gonna be. Man, it's been quiet around here for the last couple of months. <laughs> Your family would love it. But you got to be thinking. There's certain things. Like I say, I watch some of these shows, just the highlights and stuff. And such and such dropped out this week because of. And I'm like, are you kidding? For that? That's the reason? Yeah. 
I know. Like, what was it last year? The guy that surprised me, he lost his, uh, and he gave up so quick. He lost his, uh, his, uh, his flint, not his flint, his, uh, Firestone. Firestone. Fire was that last year? Was it, I think it was last year, wasn't it? It was Great, I know that happened. Great Bear Lake with an aluminum boat. He went out to the, his, he found a little aluminum, 12 foot aluminum, uh, boat and he positioned it, lit a fire under it, filled it with water, had made a hot tub. Oh. But on the way back from there, somehow he dropped his uh, his striker for making fire. And so he spent an afternoon looking for it and then called in, yep, I give up. I was like, what? Yeah. Like, do you not know another method? Had you, have you not practiced other methods? That's what gets me about these sort of things. Like, you should be able to know how to make fire several different ways when you're going out there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just, I don't know. It, it just bugged me that people would throw it in the towel at so easily, right? So this year. <clears throat> yes. Uh, and you say it's only episode two. Yeah, episode two. So so one of the guys, oh, I can't remember his name. I'm not going to say his name, even if I did know it. Anyways, so he, um, like right on day two, he, he he's dropped off. Everybody's dropped off at different locations. And then you have to find an appropriate place to build your shelter. So for the most part, the first few episodes are, are people building their little homestead, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're building their survival shelter. And so this dude, right off the bat, finds one of those spring traps that you'd like catch beaver, or right. small animals or whatever, right? So it's like a leg trap. So it's like, oh, wow, this is a game changer. So instead of counting on snaring rabbits and whatever, it's like this this spring trap is, is going to be an amazing boon to like you're gonna his larger odds, animals yeah you're gonna be able to catch larger animals and the odds of of uh having to you know, bail out and throw in the towel because you're starving to death are greatly reduced so it's like fantastic it's, so it's, suddenly it's a source of food it's a source of protein uh, you you can you're the bit greater odds of winning and so but when <laughs> so at about at about day 15 it was day 15 he uh he was so, I've killed so many animals. So he was traumatized because he had killed so many animals. He just couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't kill another animal. And it's like, but but that's what you signed up for. This is the deal. Like That's you, survival. People aren't going to bring you food. You Like, I don't know, did he, was he planning on just eating worms? Fine, then stop killing animals and eat worms. But... <laughs> I don't know. Like he threw in the towel at day 15. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, like I said, I don't want to make fun of anybody because sure, you, you, there's compassion, right? So, you know, it, it, you're taking a life and you're, but you're sustaining yourself. And, but you go, you should have been going into this thinking that, yes, animals would be killed. I need the proteins. I need the fat. I need to eat. So this is this is one of those things a compromise uh, you know and and you know you'll think about the animals in in honor of their you know what they gave for you and yada mm-hmm. yada yada. So I don't want to make it too hokey but <laughs> but yeah it's um for you to drop out because you've killed animals it's why you're there. That's the plan to survive. To survive. I mean alone. I'm surprised they don't have a thing at the beginning going Animals were hurt in the film. Of I this know, show. right? I've always wondered about that. Why didn't yeah. they make a disclaimer? Like, I know that, I and I've seen it in the past where they said, that in their brief, they say, for example, you're not allowed to kill wolves, or you're not allowed to kill this, or you're not Some allowed guy to- took out a musk ox or something, didn't yes, he? Yes, yes, he did. He got himself a musk ox. Yeah. Like- and he survived way late. 
was that? No, it was the, so when Kalen was on, it was the Alaskan guy who just managed to pull on through, but it wasn't the muskox guy that won, wasn't it? It was, uh, it was the, the Alaskan guy. Anyways, so yeah, he had a muskox and he consumed every piece of that muskox, yeah. the bone marrow, the everything, the brains, everything. He, he was like, oh, I'm impressed. That was impressive. So anyways, uh, yeah, so... It, it, and, and when they were t- in the, one of the articles I read, they were talking about back in season five, some guy was like, he had, uh, he's alone. He needs to talk to somebody. So he's, he befriends a squirrel. His little squirrel came to, in, into his camp and would chitter at him. And he'd like, hey, talk to the squirrel. And it was his little buddy. And then he got really hungry. And then he got closer and closer to the squirrel and more buddy buddy. And finally he was, he caught his little buddy, ate his little buddy. And then was so traumatized that he he betrayed his little buddy that he bailed because he ate his little buddy squirrel. Mm-hmm. He felt like he betrayed him. Yeah. So, but I mean, but with he that, did befriend him. They were yeah. friends for like <laughs> a month. <laughs> but that you got to think had something to do with the lack of food and all that sort of. So stuff. there's yeah, there's underlying you know, that stuff. Really there's ongoing plays trauma. On your of, yeah, you're yeah. alone. You don't have another human voice to talk to, to, human face to talk to. Yeah. And so there's, I'm sure that has to affect you somewhere in the back of your brain, right? Mm-hmm. You are very isolated, and so your your emotions are going to be running a little bit wild and run amok. See, and if I had that trap and I started trapping a lot of animals, I'd be trying to find out where the other contestants were and start bartering. Just totally change <laughs> the game. I'll give you three rabbits for that spear. <laughs> <laughs> Pack of matches you got, you say. Yeah. Ah, five rabbits and a mink. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if kicked off the show so fast. <laughs> I wonder if contestants have ever run into each other before. I think no. I think they're too far apart. I think they put them like miles and miles and miles and miles and yeah. miles apart, where they they don't have the chance to mm-hmm. run into each other. Yeah, but I, I got to think they're given. Okay, you know what? You can only go so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a you know, uh, uh, there's got to be some sort of boundary they put on mm-hmm. on you because realistically, nothing's. Nothing that I know of says you have to stay where they put you. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, maybe they you can say be, they drop you off at a location. Create a nomadic survive. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So huh. I survived for a hundred days while walking back to town. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's in the rules or not. It doesn't say. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and I'm walking back to camp. Yeah. Got a keg on my back. <laughs> a couple of Mickey D burgers. <laughs> Get halfway mm, back, mm, finish mm. off my supplies, go to head back. Yeah. What do you, what one survival thing are you bringing on the trip? My debit card. Because <laughs> you know. But it, what it comes down to, I think one thing that stuck in my mind is that there's always an episode, there's always a season where, where somebody, it's it's like I don't know. Maybe people can really analyze deep instead of saying, you know what, with the loss of this item, I'm going to stick it out and I'll see what happens over the next week or two with the loss of this item. Or do you say, you know what, going forward, 
it's impossible the amount of energy it takes to you put a stick to a piece of wood and trying to make a friction fire is just too much energy i'm uh, in the back of my head i'm calculating out the energy needed and and with that fi- with my uh, with my flint i'm not going to be able to uh, do this and maintain my mm-hmm. energy you know what i mean like because i always i go back to uh season one season two joe robinette he dropped his uh flint I keep calling it flint. What do you call those sticks? The ferrite rod? Ferris, ferro rod. Ferro rod. Ferro rod. There we go. So he dropped his ferro rod on the beach, and it, it, I don't know how, how long, I can't remember how long it looked, but he did not put much effort into looking for it. And there's some, there, you know, there's some chatter. It's like, oh, he wanted to throw in the towel. It was just, he needed an excuse. Oh, dropped my ferro rod. I'm out. Right? So it's, uh, I don't know, like the, for... I would like, I don't know what I would do in that situation, but I would like to think that I would find another method, another way, and put great effort into collecting wood so that maybe I just constantly have a fire going 24 hours a day type mm-hmm. thing, right? And so I don't have to start another stupid fire. Well, and I think you, you said something there. Until you're in that position, you don't know what you would do, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it's just, if, if it happened on another day, then maybe you go, oh, whatever, I can use a stick to make a fire yeah yeah you yeah. know i'll i'll just draw down lightning from the sky or something <laughs> whatever and uh but just hope it happens <clears throat> on a day yeah but uh yeah there, like i say there's a few things that i just look at like you know what you you easy. just took the spot it, from somebody else yeah i know right that's why that's why somebody I, I else have problems watching would have put like in that. that much more effort and you just gave up with it with just uh like a somebody turned a switch mm-hmm. in your head boom hey i'm done yeah but broken, still cool to watch, a though. Broken nail. I give up. <laughs> <laughs> I stubbed my toe. <laughs> Stupid squirrel. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be cool, though, to just stumble upon other contestants and start bartering. <laughs> totally changed the game on them. <laughs> Season 10 has been canceled. <laughs> Because none of the players were participating properly. You get some crazy guy who who hunts down and consumes a fellow contestant. (laughs) (laughs) I I needed the protein. (laughs) We went to check on the contestant, and he had four other contestants in a containment (laughs) stocks like cattle out back of his little home. We, we had to put a stop to the episode. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> we won't air this one. <laughs> As directors look through the rule books. <laughs> yes. Can we keep this? <laughs> he stood there with his grinding wheel in his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and because he had collected so many cameras, he was filming from six different angles. <laughs> jingle bells, jingle bells. What's <laughs> on the tap for dinner this Christmas? <laughs> Anyway, we digress. <laughs> yes. We took a total turn on that one. But yes, uh, Alone is getting weird this year. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you remember last year, uh, endurance kayaker Cyril Deramo? He was attempting to paddle from uh, California Bay to um, Honolulu. Yes, he quickly ran into trouble. I remember six that. days. Mm-hmm. He was six days into his approximate seventy-day trip, and he had to get rescued. Yes, but as opposed to what we're talking about alone here, he didn't just throw in the towel. It was he ran into some serious problems. Where yeah, what was GPS was all fenorked. Uh, yeah, and that was actually it was almost 
just over a year ago exactly. Like yeah, yeah. This this past week. Um, he was, uh, yeah, just 70 miles west of Santa Cruz. He lost his anchor for his 23-foot uh, kayak. Yeah. Anchor lines had gotten tangled up in the rudder. His GPS was malfunctioning, and he lurched with seasickness. Mm-hmm. So he says, as night had just fallen, it was clear the situation was not sustainable. Inability to eat, drink, sleep, or communicate easily with my team ashore. And then with my land support crew, we reported the situation. I was into the U.S. Coast Guard to jointly explore all possible options. And the option came down to, uh, a few hours later, a Coast Guard helicopter rescuing him. Mm -hmm. And as he's heading up to the helicopter in the basket... Uh, his, they left his kayak down there floating in swells up to 14 feet and wind as strong as 35 knots. Yeah. So it did, uh, the weather did degrade drastically. Mm-hmm. And so it's, so you, you said anchor, so it's sea anchor for anybody wondering. So it's just like a parachute underwater. Keep your boat facing into the wind so that you're, you're head on into the waves. You're not taking side angle waves. Yeah. And, um, his rudder was fouled. So he had, he had you know, unusable rudder. And, uh, so it's just, and plus his GPS was going wonky. So it, it didn't look good. It was for him to push on and, uh, trying to push through this, he would have had to make it through the night with this horrible weather. And, uh, it just didn't seem, I, I, I think he made the right choice because, uh, with the loss of his sea anchor and, and, uh, his GPS was wonky. It was, uh, I think he did make a good choice and, mm-hmm. but he took it, those lessons and in, he made well, he made fixes. He'd spent three years preparing. Yeah, you know, for the just, trip. Yeah, and it ended in six days. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, he's taken you know he's taken it as a uh, setback as opposed to a failure. Yeah. Now something like that, you got to think there's a bit of embarrassment too. Oh, absolutely. When you're yeah. just like, oh, I've got trying try to face people. I've now. got all these sponsors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't even know. If, I, I guess there, there's a bit of embarrassment that it all failed. Oh, absolutely. So, went, so soon. Uh, like thumbs and, and down. It, but. It, it, nothing. It wasn't that he made any mistakes. It's just no. a, a string of bad luck. Now I saw a video with him saying that he needs to get out at least 90 kilometers from shore. So he said he needs three days of good weather, doing about 30 kilometers a day. Mm-hmm. Three. Sorry, miles. Yeah. Not kilometers. 30 miles a day. So he needs to be off shore about 90 miles so that the winds don't start pushing them back to shore. Yes, yeah, so if the the way the winds are the 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 trade winds and stuff they they do circle and so eventually he gets far enough out he'll get a tailwind blowing him towards Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what does he say? He says, when it comes to learning about crossing an ocean as a solo person, you can read all the books you want, you can talk to all the people that have done it before. You can listen to all the podcasts you want. I wonder if you listen to ours. You can <laughs> <laughs> you can even have done it before as a team, which he has done. Uh, there is nothing that will prepare you for what's actually coming other than living through it. That's called experience and is as raw as it gets, believe me. So, yeah. So, that's... that's mm-hmm. He's taken all that into... Yep. You got to think he's ta- he took a couple weeks afterwards and, you know, to get over... Collected his thoughts. Yeah. Like so his wounds. Yeah. This June, any time now, he was supposed to be gone already, but I got, I got to think they're waiting for- A weather window. A it's really good weather window. Yeah. Uh, they just say early June, which mm-hmm. it is now. He's going to try it out again. Uh, they've made He's made a bunch of, of changes to his boat. 
His journey will tackle 2,400 nautical miles of the Pacific Ocean. He'll put in an, at Sausalito, California, in the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge. And if successful, he'll become the second solo kayaker to complete the trip. Yeah. Uh, last guy did it in like 67 or 64 days and something a lot less than this. Oh, yeah? What he's got, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, his boat has a cabin, updated communication, location technology, bilge pump, and several upgrades since the first attempt. Uh, his kayak updates f- in the last year have been modification to the sea anchor system and its lines, as well as the rudder and dagger board, uh, dagger board well, installation of a satellite communication system with external antenna, enabling him to make phone calls and emails from inside the cabin. I guess he just had a handheld or something like that. He had a handheld, had and so inside the cabin in a storm, it, it had bad connectivity. Yeah. Just because your satellite signal is, is hard to get in, in bad weather, right? Mm-hmm. Cloud cover and so on. And then you're indoors. And then you're indoors. Yeah. There's not much fiberglass between him and the outside, but it's enough. Yeah. Uh, addition of a custom side panel to prevent water breach in the cockpit. And addition of a manual bilge pump inside the cockpit to back up the primary electric unit. Uh, he's also trained explicitly in high wind scenarios, the same kind that led to last year's rescue off the coast of Santa Cruz. So, yeah, he's taking that saying, well, this could happen again. I better train how to get through this mm-hmm. in case it happens this time. Yeah. So he's gone through all that. He's taken all the negative things that happened and he, he's he's learned from them. He says designing the boat, having it custom built, improving it for months and months Doing sea trial after sea trial, I'm now approaching the starting line again. I am happy with my equipment and gear. I know how to use them and repair them. Now I just have to put it all together and make it happen. It's going to be terribly hard, but I will do my absolute best to make it a success. Uh, so yeah, he's any time now he's going to be starting out. Uh, he says his goal after he reaches Honolulu, after 70 days at sea, he'll be looking forward to a hot shower, dry sheets, a pillow, and ice cream. I don't know what it is about ice cream. We all want. I don't. <laughs> and he's gonna have. He's, he does have a uh, a website, solokayaktohawaii.com. If you go there, there will be a tracker and that sort of thing that you can follow along where he where he's uh, is once he starts. So check that out, solokayaktohawaii.com. I think we'll uh, put that up on our website is or our Facebook page and all that, so people can uh, find it easy. But yeah, all the best to him. Should be good. <laughs> I just did some quick math. So, average paddle strokes. So, a kayaker average paddle strokes is 25 strokes per minute. So, you do the math. So, 60 gives you paddle strokes per hour times 24. That gives you per day and 70 days. So, uh, he's estimate. 2.52 million paddle strokes to get to Hawaii. There might be some backtracking depending on headwinds, but... Is that paddling 24 hours a day? Yeah, okay. I guess you have to take away some of those. <laughs> but still... Well, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Call not, me a stickler for sleeping and all. I am not a scientist. <laughs> at most, 2. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. (laughs) Welcome to Math Corner with Derek. (laughs) 
Well, you'll learn as much as you learn from Book Club with Eric. <laughs> so I should have calculated how many expected how many average paddle strokes per mile. <laughs> all right. So you calculate average all that. Average paddle strokes per mile. Are you Googling it? I was asking Google, yeah. Oh, it's not going to tell you. It's laughing at you, too. I have the audio off or else she would have been talking to me. <laughs> a thousand strokes per mile. A thousand strokes times. 2,400. 2,400. Yeah. There you go. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that's a lot of, that's a lot of paddle strokes. What, 240,000? Uh, 2.4 million. 2.4 million? <laughs> Which is what I calculated about like 24 <laughs> hours a day. But I'm still probably doing it 24 matches. hours a day. Yeah. So blind leading the blind here. <laughs> All right. Well, Cyril, good luck. Hopefully yeah. uh, this is the uh, the one that uh, does it for you and you get all the way there. Yeah. No no problems. Count every stroke, Cyril. Count yeah. every. <laughs> and one and two and three and four and five. Oh, I got to go back and start again. <laughs> One million three hundred thirty thousand. <laughs> thirty thousand and one, three thousand and two. It's gonna be awesome. It's be awesome. Yeah. Shane Fowler of the CBC News put out a little report. Restoring the legendary chestnut canoe for a new generation. I came across this this article and it's actually an interesting article. About chestnut canoes. Everybody knows the old chestnut canoes. You know, anybody that's into the Cedar Strip canoes, you know, the old towns, the uh, chestnuts, the Peterborough Canoe yeah. Company, stuff like that, been around forever. Right? And, and the chestnut canoe company has a little acorn thing on their yeah. emblem with little leaves around it. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, most distinct logo a single brown nut with a wreath of six green leaves and the words Chestnut Canoe Limited. Uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, patent 1905. So there is a chestnut canoe fella uh, inside and outside the Miramichi Canoe Workshop. Miramichi Canoe Workshop. Piles of canoes at different stages of decay. Most still sport that logo. Each chestnut canoe was made by hand from the turn of the 20th century to the late 1970s, but with their signature cedar plank ribs over a wooden frame and covered with a stretched canvas. So thousands of these canoes were made in the 20th century, and most of them are now in need of repair because, you know, not everybody paddles a cedar strip canoe. A lot Mm -hmm. of them are into the lighter weights and times moved on, different lighter easier to maintain uh, materials. Norman Betts is the man who brings these canoes back to life and reflects on how their dwindling numbers are all that's left of the legacy that spanned eight decades. He is spending his retirement at his workshop restoring chestnuts to their former glory. He says it's the Cadillac of the canoes. They're meticulously made, They're not mass-produced. Everyone is unique because the wood, the knots, the feel of every canoe is unique. So he's got all these canoes sitting there, and he's slowly refurbishing them at the, uh, what did I say? It was the Miramichi Canoes Workshop. Roger McGregor, 
uh, also felt the Chestnut Canoe Company wasn't getting its due. So in 99, he published a book called When the Chestnut Was in Flower, detailing the rise and fall of the Fredericton uh, em- Enterprise. Hmm. He recounts how in 1900, brothers Henry and William Chestnut took over their father's successful hardware business in downtown Fredericton and started catering to wealthy sportsmen coming from Boston, New York, to hunt moose, bear, caribou, or to fish for salmon on the Miramichi. Hey, caribou? What? The used to, I guess, if they don't anymore. Sounds like like a good addition to my library. (laughs) What? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. You got the best unread library I've ever seen, buddy. (laughs) It's like a bookstore. Nary a cracked spine to be seen. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you see the one that you, when you fell down the stairs. Uh, At that time, custom canoes made of birch bark in the indigenous tradition dominated the market, but the chestnut canoe was born with the advent of canvas, a a tightly woven heavy fabric. He says, they just covered the wooden boats with canvas, which was pretty much the start of the canvas covered canoe in Canada. Now, they were also doing that. They started doing that down in uh, Maine with Old Town. Yeah. But uh, the brothers quickly got a patent in Canada for the Cedar Strip canoes. You can patent a canvas covered? I guess back I guess in the you day, could. could, right? He says the very first chestnuts were built in 1904 at what was known as Calder's Boathouse. A year later, the company built a factory on King Street. Then in 1907, an expanded factory was built on York Street. It was lost in a fire, but immediately rebuilt. And today the building still stands, formerly a popular bar. It now houses government offices, Hmm. at which they probably all have alcohol in their desk (laughs) drawer, so it's still a bar. Yeah. Within a few years, the factory is producing more than a thousand chestnut canoes a year. That doesn't seem like a lot. Oh. For a factory. Yeah, but. All handmade though, right? Handmade. Yeah, I guess. Right. So that you're, you're That'd talking be three a day. Yeah. Woo. Basically yeah. three or four, three and a half a day. And so just, I don't want to interrupt the story, but I was just thinking, can you imagine having your factory burned down? All of your, your original molds for forming your canoes. That would be a huge The original loss. molds, as we will find out later in the story. Oh, is it talked about? It's talked about. <laughs> okay. They were made of iron. Ooh. Well, I, I, didn't picture, I didn't this is something that. that I didn't realize. I was thinking they'd be... Wood. But wait! So I guess they won't burn. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. No. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to next week's show. We'll tell you what happened. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, so there are a thousand of these um, a year. He says the Chestnut pe- Canoe people had perfected the art of building these canoes over a hull or a form... And despite being about 100 years old, several of those original forms still exist. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. Because if they were wood. They would have rotted away. Rotted. Dry rot. Fire. Yeah. You know. Tucked away in an old dairy barn outside Fredericton are seven original chestnut canoe molds. Each one was used to build hundreds and hundreds of chestnut canoes over nearly 80 years. That's amazing. The forms simply look like overturned canoes made from heavy wood. They have iron ribs instead of cedar. Okay. Right? Yep. The canoes were built over top of them when the brass tacks hammered into the cedar ribs. Uh, they would, the tips would, 
mash into the iron ribs, forming a button. I wondered how did they huh? do that. that. I read that. And I'm like, oh, I've seen that. Yeah. I thought they just had a hammer in each On the other side. Yeah. Hammered, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty tacky. They were good, man. <laughs> <laughs> hammer in each hand, one they couldn't see. Well, that's what they did building buildings back You hear about that in yeah. New York City when they were making the rivets. So some guy would stand on one side, they'd hammer towards you with yeah. sledgehammers. So that's what happened. They would, the brass nail would hit that iron rib and mm-hmm. squish out and form that button. Wow. When the canoe frame was finished, it was simply lifted off the form. Huh. Right? When the Chestnut Canoe Company folded in 1979, after years of financial hardship, a dedicated employee decided to take a chance on rescuing the molds. Good for him. Donald Fraser spent 28 years working for the Chestnut Canoe uh, and was only 50 when the company collapsed. That was the year he decided to try building a canoe himself. He so, didn't build the canoes there. No. So he worked for the company yep. for 28 years, and he was 50 years old when the company collapsed. Yep. So he was... 22. Pretty young starting out. I guess, yeah, my, my math was, I was thinking 12, so I'm... Bad math. <laughs> 2.4 million paddle strokes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm not a teacher. <laughs> Example number two of this evening's show of Derek's math... <laughs> Oops. He was seven years old when he started. We're going to edit that out. (laughs) No, we're not. (laughs) Anyway, so that's the year he decided to build a canoe himself or attempt to. I just decided that it was possible to just walk into another job somewhere at that time. uh, And he decided that if the company wasn't going to keep building canoes, he would take up the mantle. And he said, I didn't build canoes at Chestnuts. I was in sales. But I had spent a lot of time going through the factory. You'd learn something every time you walked through the plant. He says he bought seven of the chestnut molds, and over the next 28 years, with the help from his late wife, Isabel, he built 230 individual canoes. That's amazing. That's that's a lot, man. Huh. I made a very moderate, modest living. It kept the wolves away from the door and all it amounts to. <laughs> but you know what? That's... Just made ends yeah, meet, but yeah. If you're, if you're paying your bills... Doing something you love. Uh, he sold the Fraser Canoes through New Brunswick, Ontario, BC, and Washington State. Uh, sorry, he, he sold them throughout New Brunswick, Ontario, BC, and Washington State. And a few were even shipped to Europe. Can't call them chestnuts, but they were built off the chestnut forms, says Fraser. He called them Fraser Canoes. He called them Fraser Canoes. His first name's Fraser. Yeah. Uh, well, his last name's Fraser. Okay. And he he built his last canoe about 15 years ago. He's still fiercely protective of the molds, despite offers he won't sell them. Hmm. Like something like that, you'd think maybe the canoe museum, Canadian Canoe Museum would uh, be interested in. Yeah, Yeah, he's got uh, seven molds. Uh, Let me talk to the canoe company about uh, the six molds they're getting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'll transport them for you. (laughs) For 56 years, Fraser said the molds formed his livelihood and he's honored to be part of their history. So from Chestnut to Fraser. Mm -hmm. So anybody that's got a Fraser canoe actually has a Chestnut Chestnut canoe. canoe. Fraser, McGregor, and Betts all attribute Chestnut's demise to the company trying to do too much instead of just focusing on canoes. There was an attempt to get into motorboats and fiberglass canoes, but it didn't work. I seem to have heard, I think we've mentioned that before. So we we talked briefly about 
this guy. It was about a uh, gathering on either oh, the Miramichi fiddling River. on the Miramichi. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was he was Kessa was briefly mentioned in that podcast. I don't remember mm-hmm. how much we brought into it, but we did barely mention this guy and Chestnut Canoes. Yeah. Uh, while the Chestnut Canoe Company is gone, online marketplaces are littered with Chestnut Canoes for sale. Prices vary depending on their condition, but usually they're at least $1,000, which, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bet says, it's a testament to the quality of the workmanship. Miramichi Canoe sees a constant flow of chestnuts coming through its doors. Bets feels New Brunswickers are just starting to appreciate the quality. Mm-hmm. Many of his restorations are canoes that belong to someone's grandparent. And there's an heirloom status that comes with them, which is true. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Uh, as long as there's a chestnut canoe that could be, that could use new canvas, a layer of paint, or some ribs replaced, Bet said there will always be someone who will recognize the value to Canadian history. Very cool. That is. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's, that's uh, I've known people with chestnuts and Peterborough canoes and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, this belonged to my dad, and he got it from his grandfather yeah, yeah, or yeah. or something like I've that. I restored it. Or, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, it was my grandfather's. My uncle's, it was up at the, the cottage. Yeah. He sold the cottage. My dad brought it down, had it restored. We would mm-hmm. go, go fishing yeah. in it. He passed away, gave it to me. That sort of thing, right? I think so, it, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. Very, very cool. Uh, so yeah, if you've got a chestnut canoe or anything like that, take care of it. Mm-hmm. And what else? Oh, oh, this was t- sort of, I caught this one caught my eye because you always talk about kids wanting to get out and stuff like that and sports, school sports and stuff, right? Yeah. The largest school dragon boat event in Canada, which I didn't know was dragon boating in school. I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah. We got track, we got football, we got rugby, lacrosse, field hockey, soccer. Well, it depends on where you are. Like I, uh, Cross country. A friend of mine, she's down on uh, St. Catharines. And so down there on the canals, they have uh, skull races and stuff. And her yeah, year old daughter is racing skulls. And while well, she's just 17, and she's still in school. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be high school. Yeah. Anyway, it's a festival open to all schools across Manitoba and 50 teams traveling to compete. That's amazing. 50 teams. 50 teams from all across Manitoba. Races are, actually, I should say races were held because it was last week uh, at the Manitoba Canoe and Kayak Center in Winnipeg. Huh. So in 1990, the Manitoba School Dragon Boat Challenge started as a war canoe event for teams to test their speed and skill against other schools in the province. Senior and junior high teams raced 500 meters in a battle to the finish to be named the fastest boat on the water. Plus, at the end of the day, there is always an exciting eight-boat final race. Hmm. But, like, that wasn't offered when I was in school. No, I know. Nothing like this. I've never even heard of it. No. We just had track and field day. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Uh, there is a team from East Winnipeg was one of the 50 that finally had a chance to get on the water this year after the annual competition was postponed during the pandemic. And this is the thing like the student, I mean, from 50 schools, the students are just right into this. eh? The teacher said that the students from her school this year's competition was their first time. So the day was all about her students doing the best. And as much as everybody wants to get out there and win, right? 
Uh, they said, we're very competitive all in all, but I think we're here to participate today. It is our first time, and we think we're doing really well. We'd like to win, but today is all about participating. Participation trophy. Getting the participation. Well, I don't know that they, they don't say about a participation <laughs> trophy, but, you know. Sure, they all got a ribbon. They all got something. Uh, students said they were grateful to have the chance to compete. They say, some of them said, to, to have a kind of sense of community and just being able to be on a team for my school, it feels really good. Being able to come out with everyone and really having a sense of a school community and just the spirit of everyone loving having a day outside on the water, it's fantastic. Remember that school spirit used to always be the big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, everybody, the spirit the, days, the spirit days and, yeah. and having the rallies, the football games, mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they're, they're just loving to be out there. Florian, uh, Hasker Carer. Whoa. Yeah. And that's pretty much how it said. <laughs> uh, paddler at the Manitoba Canoe and Kayak Center said it was great for him to finally be out at the event too. Again. All teams are really having a great time. The atmosphere is quite joyful. Everyone is glad to be back out. It's really enjoyable to see everyone on the water and having fun on the water again. So, yeah, 50 teams from around Manitoba. It's incredible. Just, hey, huh. why don't we all just head on down to, you know, Winnipeg, yeah. which is like a few hundred kilometers away. <laughs> <laughs> Bring this big boat with us. <laughs> well, what's what's cool, too, is and I remember doing stuff when I was in high school, is uh, it's an opportunity to get away from school yeah. and do something uh, as, as a group. Yeah, like you travel and it's that team spirit and all that stuff. It's uh, instead of just you know the same old uh, math, English, history, yada 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 every day. Well, it, it turns into social events as well, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yep. You know, like it's more than just the. All right, let's win this race. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a whole yeah. the traveling. Yeah. There's the staying in a hotel or wherever they're staying together, hanging out all however long, like a few days together, mm-hmm. doing the racing, watching other racing. It's a whole social. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and these days, man, everybody needs that. Yeah. More and more. Casper uh, Steinfath, the guy that was uh, up paddleboarding around Denmark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He finished. 54 days after paddling his board away from his home shores. So this is just a little update about it. When did we talk? Was, what, this was a couple s- weeks ago. Two or three weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Two weeks ago. We talked about this, I think. Um, he returned to the same spot he took off from 1,448 kilometers, 277 hours of paddling, over half a million paddle strokes behind him. He counted his strokes, see? See, he did, yeah. One, two, one. <laughs> uh, he circumnavigated his entire country, a monumental mission through snowstorms, rain, wind, and of course, across open seas. Not to mention a little 40-kilometer stretch of land he's named the Jutland Traverse. Anyway, it's just where I guess where bottom where it connects, right? The most complicated part, learning to get comfortable in a tent and sleeping outside. It's not something he's done. Oh. Right? And, of course, he's got all the gear on his his stand-up paddleboard. Yeah. It was not all smooth sailing, though. Day 6-7, a snowstorm hit and almost... Two months later, he's still talking about that. <laughs> it was a very remote stretch. I was all alone because who wants to paddle during a snowstorm into a headwind? While he was confident heading out that day, a few hours after snow blowing in his face, reality, 
a cold sunk in. Eventually, it had just run to the be- I just had to run to the beach, seek shelter, and I ended up cooking bacon in the middle of a snowstorm just to get something warm in me. <laughs> there was another part where he was paddling in through fog. Oh. And he was waiting for the fog to lift fog lift. and just as the as the fog lifted, all of a sudden he noticed that a big thunderstorm had rolled in. Oh. And just as the fog lifts, he's hearing this <laughs> And then he's racing to shore yeah. to try to get away from the uh, thunders. Does it never end? <laughs> uh, calories were one of his biggest concerns. Putting down so much mileage on the water meant he had to consume five to 6,000 calories a day. Since it was a circumnavigation, not a crossing, he was able to restock frequently. I'll just pull into this port and hit the local store, right? But that meant he had plenty of food and gear on board. He boiled six eggs every morning and was always carrying protein bars, apples, and pears, uh, candy bars. And then at the end of the day, he used ready-made military meal packs. It was great. I could have pasta cabanera anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So five to six thousand calories a day. So the average uh, average daily intake for for women is two thousand calories a day, twenty five hundred for men. So that's uh, that's a considerable amount of calories. Well, he's and doing work, and I imagine stop, he right? was losing weight on top. Uh, while he completed the uh, journey, he estimates three hundred or more people joined him. He was the only one that did the whole thing, but different people were joining him along the route. And at some at some point, he says, "Go ahead, make the Forrest Gump joke. I've heard it a three hundred times, <laughs> but make no mistake, he appreciated the company." I can imagine, right? So they say, "What's next?" I've been eyeing Denmark to Great Britain. <laughs> this expedition has given me an appetite for more expeditions. Good for him. He says he's got buddies that do expeditions all the time. And he's like, "What am I missing out on?" Well, yeah. now he's been bitten by the bug. Does it say how old he is? He's not old at all. Um, I think he's late 20s, early 30s or something oh, okay. like that, if I'm not mistaken. Oh. Yeah, he's not all that old. He's 94. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last thing I got here. So I've come across so many expedition and massively long trips this year. And paddling across Canada and the U.S. seem to be a couple of popular ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm paddling across to Canada for raise money for this, that, and the other thing. Uh, this guy's paddling across because he wants to be the first to retrace all the Voyager routes and explorers routes, yeah. and which I think has been done many times. Just, you know, we'll let him be the first. Um, and then there was one a couple of years ago. They started in Oregon. That would be... Uh, Martin and why do I want to say Julian? Julianne, Julian. They're the ones that did like uh, 20 or 30 different watersheds on the Mississippi, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Oh, why am I forgetting her name? They, they really retraced a portion of the. Uh, who's the, the two guys that went out and did the map making throughout the U.S., northern U- central northern U.S.? Uh, oh, man. One of them married uh, a native woman. Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. Oh, I'm just bad with names too, yeah, man. I and now I'm bugging. Why can't I think of her name? Martin and, and her did that route. Oh, 
Jillian Brown. Yeah, that was her name. <laughs> that was it. Are you I, happy I knew, now? Are you I'm happy now? Oh, that would have bugged me forever. I feel so bad for taking this long to remember what it was. <laughs> Actually, she I, I see her posts on my Facebook and stuff like that. So, <sighs> sorry, Jill. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was starting in Oregon. Yeah. And working their way down to Florida. Yes. Yeah. Something happened along yeah. the way where they ended up, uh, I guess, going their separate ways. And um, they I went. I think they both finished, but um, did they both finish? I thought they but did. But they did it at separate times. Yeah, like they, I remember, they finished it. Yeah, at I remember we times. talked about that for a short period of time, and they there was. Uh, I, I remember them talking about the difficulties of because they had to drop over dams and and they had to leap from watershed to watershed and and yeah, they uh, there was discussion because they did it over seasons, didn't they? No, and, they did, but then, I know they had to um, bunker down because of storm, storm like yeah, hurricane storm. or uh, tornadoes. Mm-hmm. And, and such. Yeah, I can't so, remember their names. Well, Martin Tran and it's Julie too. Why am I totally bogging down <laughs> on that name? Oh, I'm going to feel so bad now. I do feel so bad now. I should know her name. Anyway, so they did it. So this time, I came across somebody else looks like they're doing the exact same route. Okay. Okay. Thorin Lokes. He's a singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. He's from the Yukon. Singer, songwriter, social worker, grad student, podcaster, and adventure athlete. He's produced three studio albums since 2016, all while logging multiple long cycling and paddling trips. So this is what he does. He goes on a massively long trip. Unemployed and homeless. Writes an album. Comes back home. Produces the album and puts it out. <laughs> so he's in his early 30s. Uh, he's embarking on an expedition that will take him from the shore of the Pacific Ocean to the Florida Gulf Coast. Uh, maybe not surprisingly, he plans to write his next album along the way. I got to think that distance, you're writing more than one album. <laughs> or it's a double CD set. That's all I'm saying. Or he puts some quality uh, effort into the songs. Yeah. Into the writing. Says I grew up paddling and being out appreciating nature. Loke says, says I think the combination of music, community, adventure, and challenging myself to learn what I'm capable of is a powerful experience for me. I've always had that drive to explore new places, get in the lay of the land. Says he looks to looks. He estimates that he has paddled and biked over twenty four thousand kilometers. That's uh, in the past eight years. That's incredible. He's ridden his bike across the northern U.S. from Astoria, Oregon to Portland, Maine. Wow. Yeah. Uh, paddled the entire length of the Mississippi River. Cycled from the Arctic Circle to San Francisco on an album tour. <laughs> an album tour. Starting in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Hitting all kinds of pubs and, and uh, hot spots where people want to hear your music. That's... Uh, <laughs> you roll in on a bike. Yeah. I'm here to play my set. <laughs> uh, this this time around, the musician plans to paddle the Columbia River to where it meets the Snake River in southern Washington State. From there, he'll continue about 160 kilometers to the Idaho border. 
He then plans to cycle about another 220 kilometers across Idaho into Montana. A friend will bring his canoe to the headwaters of Big Hole River, where he'll put in and head for the mighty Mississippi via multiple other main waterways like the Jefferson and Missouri Rivers. Usually people will end up just portaging that mm-hmm. section. Yeah, he's going to. And I'm thinking, eh, <laughs> no, no, dude, this guy's got my vote. Yeah. Just get somebody to bring it for you. Hop on a bike. Yeah, You're still you doing the distance. You know, He's writing an album. He's not trying to prove a point. Yeah. And uh, he hopes to arrive in New Orleans. He'll continue along the Gulf of Mexico to Pensacola, Florida, and the route covers about 8,000 kilometers. Self-propelled miles. That's incredible. 8,000 self-propelled miles with an album or two or six. (laughs) Yes. If somehow the mileage and songwriting don't keep him busy enough, Lokes will also spend time journaling and researching ahead of his uh, ahead of his upcoming thesis. Thesis? For what? Grad? My grad research is going to be all about what it uh, is that brings people together to do the things they love to do. What creates that feeling of community and belonging that draws people into different places and how can that be uh, fostered? To research those pivotal questions, he'll be interviewing people along wow. the way. You know, but even Mike Ranta and everybody else that we've talked to about mm-hmm. doing those things, yeah. they've all said it's just the meeting of the people. Yes. Like even John Van Berger doing the, the Erie Canal. You, constantly, you meet some good people out there. Yeah. yeah exactly. You know, so that's, he'll sit down and chit chat and, and, uh, and, and talk about that. Um, I'm a patient and persistent person. My home is where my heart is. So wherever I go, I know I can meet great people and everybody is special in different ways. That's the wonderful part about it. You get to connect with interesting and special people in unique ways and doing that through music and good conversation and beautiful communities. It's a joy. (laughs) So this sounds like another cool trip. And he's not like he's doing it to prove a point point or, you know, race it or or anything like be the first. It's pretty much what he does for a living. Yeah. (laughs) Travels and writes music. Yeah. Wow. You know. He can. St- I'm. I'm sure he. You're going to hear that he stops at places and plays a couple of. Oh yeah. Plays a couple of concerts along mm-hmm. the way or something. If you want to find out more, go to thorinlokes.com. T h o r i n l o e k s dot com. And again, we'll we'll put uh, a link up on our uh, Facebook and stuff so people can find it. Just it, it's interesting because I I wonder if he'll have a. Uh, some sort of link where we can follow where he is. Oh, I wonder, yeah. Oh, and that we'll have to check that out. Uh, but yeah, if there is a link or something, it'll be on his webpage and we can uh, see it there. Uh, that's all I got this week. Uh, same here. All righty. I got nothing to add. Nothing to add? I covered my B thing at the first. <laughs> Your B. Oh, Rowan Atkinson's coming out with a new movie, something about a B. Is he? Yeah. He's in a house in a B. Basically, it's <laughs> it's uh, Mr. Bean meets a bee. That's basically what it's, <laughs> it's going to be. So check that out. And if you haven't seen the new Top Gun movie, go watch it. I hear it's pretty good. Got to see it in IMAX. Record uh, opening weekend. Yep. All-time yep. record. Wow. And they're saying uh, the guy that played Miles, Miles Teller plays uh, uh, Rooster. Goose's son. Goose's son. Yeah. And apparently when 
they first saw him, Tom Hanks and I saw him come out with all the makeup and the mustache. They were all just like, Oh my God, he looks like wow. Goose. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't believe how much it yeah. looked like this could have been his actual son. Yeah. yeah. Right? So uh, go check that out. And uh, for all you don't not be fans, yeah, you better hurry. It's leaving the theaters. Yay. <laughs> I haven't been suckered in to go see it. Yet. I didn't know it was in the theaters. Yeah, we Isn't went it a TV series. Yeah, but they made a movie. Oh, yeah. Have you watched Ted Lasso on Apple TV? I don't know. You who got that to watch is. Ted Lasso. Stand up comedian. Uh, no, no. He's he's an American football coach. Yeah. That's been hired to teach a English football club. Oh. Or uh, to to coach it. Yeah. It's funny. It's hilarious. But it's on Apple TV. If you don't get that. Sorry. No, I don't. Um. And the Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. I'm watching that. That's we just, really, really good. We just, what is it, uh, binged it in yeah. two nights. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Got nothing done because it's really good. Pigeon. Yeah. Oh, there's a twist at the end. Yeah, I haven't got that far. I'm only about. Oh, well, four, let me tell you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> there, there might be some math involved. Actually, there is math involved. <laughs> Uh, alrighty. Well, if you want to find out more about us, you can find us at paddlingadventuresradio.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can download or stream our episodes at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and all your favorite podcast downloading sites. You can go to the episode page at paddlingadventuresradio.com and listen to all our episodes. You can download them or stream them there. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your family and friends and fellow paddlers. I want to thank everybody for listening this week. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time.